Welcome back, Kofkin Bond listeners. Tony, I'm speaking very clearly today as you're getting into my mumbling, but I'll probably halfway through, I'll probably start mumbling again. But how are you today? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. I'll stop laughing now. <laughs> so episode 88, and today... Um, how are you? you? I, I'm are you well. Today? I'm actually well, and you know, you and I have had a busy couple of weeks, actually, and need to be careful because we've been going to a lot of lunches and dinners lately. Yeah, I, I have to admit it was... Um uh, it was uh, very vigorous in the gym this morning, so it's uh, trying to work off a good lunch and dinner yesterday. Yeah. So it's, um, but as yeah, it's been uh, very interesting. It was a great trip to Sydney, and as I said to you, I was very proud of myself. I didn't just go and eat chocolate bars for two days up in Sydney. So no, you had me watching over you. But we <laughs> look, they're not all just lunches, but. We have been meeting some you know, great people over yeah, the last few weeks. Dinners too, yeah, we, but we've met some interesting people, and, and and something that's been raised is, I guess, the work that we do for our clients, um, but also on behalf of VC firms, um, yeah. in, in pairing people together to look at opportunities. So, you know, we do work work on both sides, um, and we've had some guests on here, um, you know, Lars from Reed Cloud and. Um, some other who's, who's some other ones that we've had in regards to this space this space well i mean we, we have spoken about some others yeah. uh, without mentioning their names uh but um even for example craig sheaf from technical investing yeah so he has done a couple of private placements even though the majority of his investments are in uh small cap funds uh, and even the meeting with um, the Chief Investment Officer and Founder of Ophia up in Sydney on Thursday, um, Andrew Mitchell and, and George up there. So they, you know, when you have a look at them, they, they invest in global small caps, which is a different size than Australian size uh, small caps. But uh, every company once started as an idea. And sometimes you grow that idea on your own. Sometimes you use investors' money to grow that idea and give up some equity to be able to grow quicker. And other times you go to a listing and have tens of thousands of people that believe in your story and your growth uh, plans. So, yeah. so I think I think people. I guess when we talk about um, equity partners and money coming in, a lot of people relate that to Silicon Valley. Uh, yeah, but it's yeah. not all the money's from Silicon Valley. Uh, no, there's uh, there's obviously. I mean, Silicon Valley from the tech space is very well known and iconic in yep. a way. So it's um, great for property values in that region. Uh, if you own property, that was uh, having to buy property, not so great. Even having to rent there. So we had a couple of clients go and work for um, Apple in the US a few years back and even just renting a basement studio room was nearly as much as buying a house. It was just insane but it's in demand and they were all very highly paid uh, and as a result you know it did boom for that area. But in saying that though the, you do have obviously a lot of uh, private equity and venture capital and a lot of that money does fail. Uh, so you really do have to and as you know I'm I'm quite strict in regards to what we do in here and when it comes to if we're representing a VC firm in looking for an opportunity for them yep. or whether we are representing the client who's looking to raise capital to get to that next level, there has to be a clear direction and focus. So we're not just a, you know, even before you guys would have been babies, but uh, the tech boom and bust 
uh, basically you just put .com behind it and have an idea and all of a sudden you could raise $50 million in capital based on an idea with no business plan, no clients and no anything. And you look at that and you think, no wonder why uh, that tech crash happened. Yep. The NASDAQ 100 today is very different than what it was back in 1999. Yep. There's no doubt in that. So, uh, you know, these companies are now large and profitable, not just large based on speculation. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's start on the client side where I've come to you with an idea, mm-hmm. um, whatever that idea, whether it's an app, whether it's a, you know, some, some other idea that they've come, that we've had a few come across our desk. How do you yeah. represent those type of people? Well, it depends. So, you know, as an example, we had a great meeting a couple of weeks ago with the founder of a very successful company based here in Melbourne and also in New York that builds apps. And it's it's interesting because a lot of people do go to him and, you know, very famous. He's built apps for some hugely successful organisations and, and groups as well. But, you know, what what's interesting is people come to him and they spend the money to build a magnificent app, which really gives them a great look. But do they have a understanding or clear focus on what it can do? So as an example... Uh, without giving away anything realistically. So I'll try to get my point across, even though I'm speaking in riddles in some way because we can't mention clients or clients' names here, obviously. But you might be extremely successful in a certain field. Uh, Let's say it was medical, um, as an example. And you have come up with this magnificent business idea which really has legs. But you're really good at fixing things or replacing things or cutting people open and fixing them up and things like that. Uh, and that's where your focus is and that's where you do, you know, you, you make 500000 or you make a million dollars a year in doing that. But you've come up with this great idea which can have a magnificent social impact, is is great. It's, obvi- it's obviously got, in this case, usually got a, in the case we're talking about, has got a medical background. Uh, but in saying that, What's the business plan? How are you going to promote it? How are you going to get it out there? Uh, What is that idea worth? Because at the moment, it's just an idea. And uh, for something to be realistically to be worth money, it has to be able to make money. So, and you have the famous uh, Bill Gates quote is, a lot of people overestimate what they can achieve in one year uh, or even in three years, uh, but underestimate what they can achieve in 10. So sometimes from this perspective, a lot of the founder's money is going into developing and building and building. And the most successful, and I've written this for our Christmas message this year, but the most successful entrepreneurs that we have seen, the people who've got long-term sustainable growth, are the ones that realise that to start with, if you're thinking about becoming a multimillionaire in the space of 12 months, you usually fail. Uh, but what can happen with these magnificent ideas is that if you're out there to serve the people, if you're out there with an idea that has a real social impact and is actually going to serve the people and help community and that eventually when you you will make money and eventually when you do start making money, what a lot of these founders do is they don't go off and quickly go and buy a Bentley uh, as an example or lease. You know, everything is leased, so on the surface they look magnificent. They actually will reinvest that money straight back into the business to grow, to take it to that next stage. 
and they're the ones, they're the people who have the great idea, have spent the money to build, but sometimes it's now to get that from from where it is making money to that next level is where they have to make a decision. So they're making money now on paper, but they're not taking money out of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and what they then usually do is that's when it's a case of, well, you know, it's uh, Mr. Kofkin, do I look at potentially listing or... Do and we we sometimes come in at that stage where it's still just an idea and being built yep. with their own money, but do I look at a potential listing or do I look at bringing in venture capital money, and that's where you know you can go off on two or do I just keep funding my own money into this? So in other words, I've always said there's no use accepting any money from venture capital or private equity unless you uh, that is going to help you achieve the goals that the business can achieve far quicker than what you would if you just did it yourself and kept pouring your own money into it. So, And there's two very distinct differences between going down the small cap listing route and doing a capital raise that way and going down the venture capital or private equity route. So yep. two very different... Um, okay, so... Say so now I tried I'm, not to talk in too much riddles there, Jamie. No, that wasn't too bad. So yeah. now I've got a bag of money. I'm ready to splash some cash. How do we represent that side? Okay, has the bag of money come from <laughs> listing or has the bag of money come from uh, venture capital? Come from come from Darbs. Darbs is handed down in the family and it's come from venture capitalism money. <laughs> I keep telling your parents, do not invest in your son. <laughs> you know, stop paying for his lunches. He earns enough. <laughs> so it's, um, okay, so... But let's talk private equity. Okay, so, so let's say private equity slash venture capital to start with. Lars Lindstrom, uh, the founder of Reed Cloud, very successful company that built basically an online platform for uh, education. And when we asked Lars that question, because I've always said that being private, being a private company and not having uh, shareholders besides yourself uh, in the firm, so being a private company, whatever I earn as a salary is my business. Uh, whatever. Uh, whatever I put back into the company is my business. If we decide to pull out dividends, it's our business. Do you know what I mean? So uh, it's not up to shareholders. We can't have a shareholders revolt. And basically, when you are a listed company, everything is exposed. Uh, when, you, when you have a... So I did ask him that question. And bearing in mind, he came from that uh, merchant banking background as well. So he understood that uh, very much so. The next side of it is then though with uh, venture capital, you aren't exposed to the world like that, but you are exposed to an individual who has an expectation of making money from their investment. Yep. And has a, you know, a, if they are proper venture capital firm, and, and there's two types of realistically private equity or venture capital, um, and one is firms that use other people's money, so investors' money, and so they are getting the phone calls from all their investors yeah. and they're making the phone call to you. And the other one is very wealthy families or family officers, personal money. So it's actually their own money. Um, and they're two completely different beasts that you're dealing with. Uh, so when you actually have a look at the venture capital though, as Lars pointed out, which I thought was a great way of putting it, when you have an investor or a venture capitalist in your firm, Every Monday morning, they're ringing you and saying, what's in the pipeline, what's the numbers, how did we go last week? When you're a listed company and you've got 10,000 investors, no one gives you a call. Yep. If they don't like you, they just sell your shares. 
You know, if they do like you, they buy their share, they buy the shares. But you don't get phone calls from. Every so often, you might get a phone call from Craig Chief, um, or from Andrew Mitchell from Ophir. Uh, but it's it's basically a case of you are left alone uh, to actually because you know I've got some personal investments in some small caps. I've never rang the CEO. Uh, I know them, but <laughs> I've never actually I've never actually rang them and asked necessarily what they're doing. Uh, and but fund managers do do that, but they don't do it on a daily basis, so or a weekly basis, or even a monthly basis. So there is a difference between being listed and venture capital. So if Darbs using his own money is investing on that basis, um, he's going to want to know. You said this is going to happen. Where's it at? You know, Jamie. I come up with a wonderful idea and you say, that is a good idea, I'm going to build it and say, can we start, can it be done by next Monday? And you're saying, it'll be lucky to be done within six months. Now, if you're my, uh, if you're, or Darbs has now invested in me and I've said, oh, we could have that done in a couple of weeks and you're looking at me saying, you're an idiot because this won't be done for six months. And this is where sometimes the allure of getting a large check can be the downfall of a company at the same time. Yeah. Is that downfall of the company is that you've overpromised or underdelivered. And there's a there's a great, I can't remember the company, but it was an iconic uh, large US company. It might have been Abbott's, um, who a huge global company. And basically, whatever they thought they were going to do, they told the markets they'll do 25% less, uh, so that if they hit their target of what they thought they might do. Uh, the markets will say these guys are just sensational year in, year out. If they didn't hit their targets, the markets didn't absolutely smash them to pieces because they didn't hit their targets. And it might have been their CEO at the time, so this would have been in the 80s, when he was asked by an analyst, uh, he said, you know, um, you didn't reach your targets this quarter. And he goes, yes, I did. I just didn't reach your targets this quarter. Yeah. <laughs> so, But the markets can be unforgiving. Yeah. on that basis so so you have to be very careful but on that venture capital that is one of the major differences somebody's partnered either with their own money or family money or they've actually pulled a bunch of money together from private investors wealthy investors and they're investing on their behalf who want to see a return on capital so all of a sudden whereas we could do whatever we wanted we have venture capital sitting in that chair where Willard is uh, and he's asking questions on a weekly basis we have strict KPIs that we have to adhere to and meet uh, because they have parted with money that they want to return on. Yeah, so when we're working on that side um, and we're working for them, we also look at protecting their money as well. Absolutely, we do. So um, so let's uh, use that example I gave of that medical uh, business. So they've come up with a magnificent idea and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to build and to get out there to market and a venture capitalist comes in and says listen we really love what you're doing we see real future value on this we can get this to a listing or to extremely successful business and uh, but the value of the business right now is negligible because it's really not making money so you can't do it as a multiple of earnings but what they do is they look at the blue sky uh, if you, the old adage, blue sky. So in doing that, they might say, okay, we're going to take a 40% equity stake in the business and we're going to fund it to $5 million. And it could be done as um, part purchase. It could be done as, you know, as a future convertible note into ordinary shares if it goes to a listing. But one thing you always have to understand about a venture, capital firm, a venture capitalist or venture capital firm 
they want an exit strategy. Some of them, uh, so for example, if you take the likes of Alberts as an example, their impact fund, they're family-owned, uh, venture capitalist firm, and they take a long-term view. Has to be sustainable, has to be great for the community, and they take a long-term view on their investments. Others, uh, we're in here, we're getting it out, and our goal is to be out within three years, and we want more money back than what we put in. And that can be ruthless. But once again, you can be trapped by the lure of some money in the bank and thinking you're going to reach it, but that can, that can end up being ruthless. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Uh, I'm just saying you have to be prepared for that. So if you then have um, that scenario of the private money has come in, they've said, okay, now the idea of this is we want an exit. Now, if that exit is in five or six years' time, that exit might be to a listing. And as part of that listing, there might be a partial capital raise, there might be uh, shares that will convert to ordinary shares or will go into escrow for a period of time, for especially for the directors or initial investors, etc. Um, but the idea of that is the shares in that business now become liquid. So if you've done a, a small cap capital raising and you've raised $10 million in that, you've actually now got $10 million in the bank as well. That venture capitalist might turn around and say, well, of that $5 million, $2 million of it was a loan, we'll take our loan repayment now, thank you, bang, done. And if you take um, one of the articles by Ophir, I think two weeks ago on LinkedIn, uh, one of the comments they actually made is when they are looking at investing into an IPO, uh, whether it's here or in Australia, one of the things they look for is how much money is going to come straight out of that bank account after a capital raising for people, you know, for example, repayments of debts and things like that as well. So what's going to be, what is that money from the capital raising going to be used for? So once again, there's a whole lot of rabbit holes that you could end up going down here and we could be speaking for five hours on it, but it's a case of what's the plan, what's the strategy and understanding that if it's private money, there's going to be an exit strategy and that exit strategy might be going to a listing and if it goes to a listing, you could end up as the founder of the business getting sacked. Now, it doesn't mean you'll lose your shares, but you could end up getting sacked uh, because you're just you're not the right person to take that business to that next level. Uh, you've been the founder and you've come up with a great idea, but you are a doctor of whatever it might be. You're not a CEO or chairman. Uh, you don't have that, but you have done this great and you're the largest shareholder and things like that. Now, if you have a look at Apple as an example, uh, that happened, it was disastrous for Apple when they decided Steve Jobs was no longer the person in respect to Apple nearly collapsed. Uh, if it wasn't for Microsoft, interestingly enough, their, you know, their most hated competitor, uh, Apple would have actually collapsed. And then of course Steve Jobs came back in and Apple's one of the greatest success stories. It was a great success story even when Jobs wasn't there, but you know, it became uh, one of the greatest success stories of all companies, not just talking the tech industry. Yep. of all time. Now they started off as we know in a garage, venture capital, etc. Facebook started off in, you know, a uni room, uh, venture capital uh, got involved, etc. and took it to that next level, next level. So I'm not saying every company becomes a multi-billion dollar company, but you can start to realise your wealth. And if you have, a, if you go back to Reed Cloud, uh, use Lars as an example, they've had a stellar two months on the market. They really have. And, they've de and they deserve their success. Their share price was 
too low anyway. Yeah. Uh, they deserve the success that they're seeing today. You know, there's other small caps, you know, cyber, in cyber security. Uh, that have also done extremely well over the last two years because it's just something that is really needed nowadays as well. So when you're looking at these opportunities from a VC firm, they're looking at where the markets are going to be in the next two to three years and what type of impact can be made and what type of return can actually come from that private investment. No different than what we do as buying shares in the company ourselves. Yep. As you said, Tony, there's plenty of rabbit holes that we can go down. Oh, sorry, you, you asked a question I didn't actually yeah, answer. I was, sorry, I, I'm actually, I will answer that question. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's where I was leading you talking back Talking in then, riddles there, sorry, yeah. thank, thank you. Uh, I just realised I'm, I'm, I'm good at that with you, aren't I, Jamie? Avo- <laughs> avoiding answering the question you ask. No, it's... Um, so back to the question, how do we protect the money? Okay, so I'm a VC firm and I've just gone and pardoned $5 million to invest in your idea and I because I think it's a magnificent idea. And I most importantly, as much as, yes, it's going to have a social impact and everything else, my $5 million is going to, I believe, is going to be worth $25 million yep. one day in the near future by actually investing in you. But you're a brain. You're the person who's put that together. You're the person who's driving it. You're the founder. I've got the connections. Yeah, I'm insuring you for five million bucks. I'm not just parting with five million bucks. I'm actually insuring you for trauma insurance and life insurance for five million dollars. And you know why? Because right now you actually are a private company. Uh, and right now, if you fall off the perch, if you were to have a heart attack or get hit by a tram uh, walking across Collins Street, as an example, going to one of your many lunches, Jamie, the fact is, is I want my five million bucks back. Because the business will not continue without you at this early startup stage. So if I'm investing in you, I'm insuring you, you fall off the perch, I'll turn up to your funeral and say he was a lovely guy, but I'm getting my five million bucks back. Simple as that. Um, And then when the company gets to that mature stage where, you know what, even if Jamie decides to go on holidays uh, for six months, the company's still going to go and it's not going to be an issue anymore because we've set up a great infrastructure and management and it's just all humming along beautifully. On that basis, might not need to insure that $5 million now because it's now liquid and the company is worth considerably more. Might invest, I might have a smaller key person insurance policy on you, but if I'm investing in you, I'm insuring you and I'm that policy owner. Now, I want my money back if you decide to run in front of a tram. Uh, so, and that's that's just how we always recommend any investment that is done by a VC firm is that an insurance policy is taken out in their life. And even in some very large listed companies, uh, I mean, there's a funds management company here in Australia uh, where they insured uh, their founder and CEO and chief investment officer for $50 million. And the reason why they did that is because although they've got 300 staff and they've got a valuation of about $10 billion now, um, the basis of it is is he's still regarded as such a key person in that business, even though realistically he's not anymore. He's a bit of a micromanager, uh, but even though he's not realistically that key person and that key decision maker in the investments anymore, the fact is, is they know that they've got $100 billion in funds under management. They know that if he was to suffer a heart attack or something was to happen, it would spook the market. And potentially $15 billion of funds could walk out of their funds under management saying, well, he's no longer about. Uh, so we're actually, we're just going to go and move our money to beta shares or to Van Eck now or someone like that. So... Um, so based on that scenario, they've insured him for that because they know that's potentially the earnings that could be dropped off that business if 
$15 billion was to potentially walk out the door. So even though that's a listed company, a very profitable company, a very successful company, um, those founders are all certainly billionaires today. The key is though, is that they're protecting the asset because even though the company would still succeed and still be profitable, would it be the same if he's no longer there? So he's been insured for $50 million of trauma insurance. We weren't the advisors involved there. I would have loved to have been, but it's uh, but that's an example of even a large, profitable, successful company saying there is still a massive key person risk here. And those shares are liquid. They can be bought and sold on the market on any given day. One of our clients, Brian, loves trading in their shares. Uh, it's probably his favourite share. So it's probably one of the only ones that he trades on that's actually done well for him. So, so sorry, Brian, if you're listening. So, so, so. No, no, he's done well. Um, but the, the scenario of it is that there is key person risk even in a mature business like that as well. So yes, if I'm parting with money, I'm going to, without a doubt, make sure that I'm insuring that risk right now. Thank you for getting to that answer, Tony. It's my absolute, it. so my absolute pleasure. <laughs> and thank you for today. And Sorry um, about the last 15 minutes of waffling <laughs> before I got to that answer. But we'll, um, we'll chat next week. I'm looking forward to it.